So some of you know that in the summertime, I like to do uh, slightly more informal sermons, usually based on some chapter in this church's life, some aspect of it that uh, sort of gives us clues into who we are now and why we act the way we do. So the story I'm going to tell you is an old, old story. We're going to go back to the 1700s, the early 1700s at that. But I assure you, this story is not something long and forgotten. It, it affects us day to day in here in this congregation and in other congregations. So stick with me. It's kind of a funny old story about a funny old minister. But I assure you, it has relevance for today. The minister in question is this handsome fellow up here, the Reverend Daniel Bliss. This is um, actually one of the church's more valuable pieces of artwork. It is a pastel that was done, and because it's a pastel on black paper, it is quite rare. So it is a portrait of the Reverend Daniel Bliss, who, uh, as I soon will explain, was about the, I think it was about the fifth or sixth minister, depending on how you count, of this congregation. And he was at a, uh, the minister of this congregation at a very interesting time during what is known as the Great Awakening. And this congregation was very much involved in that, and it was um, very controversial. Imagine the most controversial thing you can think of religiously today. It was on that scale, and this church was very much involved in it, as was Reverend Bliss. So that's the setup. Put on your history ears, and we'll take an interesting ride together in the 18th century. The second reading today is a bit of a paper that a friend of mine, Alan Taylor, who's the minister in Oak Park at the Unity Temple, a Frank Lloyd Wright building in Chicago, did for his study group. This was, uh, the title of the paper was, A Legacy of Ambivalence and Suspicion, Awakenings, Revivals, and Spiritualism in 18th and 19th Century Congregational Life. Yeah, thrilling. And so this is a little bit of it that he wrote. He says, The manifestation of the first great awakening in Ralph Waldo Emerson's hometown of Concord, Massachusetts, was led by his great-grandfather, Daniel Bliss, who often became weepy in the pulpit. Bliss began his ministry at First Parish Church in 1738, and in 1741, as George Whitfield preached in the open air to a large conquered assembly, Bliss wept with joy, expressing earnest sympathy with the revivalist message and method. Bliss's frequent tearful outbursts plunged his parish into ecclesiastical discords. Some members disapproved of their minister's emotionalism. Many town folk charged Bliss as a favorer of religious excitements. So when Bliss was affirmed and simply admonished for a few improprieties of expression by the parish council, a significant portion of the congregation broke away and within five years formed the town and parish of Lincoln. I told you it was relevant today. Alan Taylor goes on, Ralph Waldo Emerson recounted this history in 1835 for Concord's bicentennial celebration, reflecting on this religious revolution that embraced the role of emotional experience in corporate worship as a sign of the presence of God's love 
Emerson struggled with how the Unitarianism of his own era had become corpse-cold. Describing the ecclesiastical trial of his great-grandfather, he marveled at Bliss's piety. To make matters worse, two other great-grandfathers of Emerson, Joseph Emerson and Samuel Moody, were also New Light clergy supportive of the revival's emotionally expressive approach to religion. Emerson must have queried, how did his family's church become an ice house? But he could not answer such questions because Emerson himself ended up abandoning the religious tradition he spent his life trying to renew. Any guesses how most Protestant churches came into being? What was the impetus? Dissent. A church fight, basically, often over the minister. So what would happen is, from church to church, or even denomination to denomination, we know how the Baptists have split a hundred times, the Lutherans split a hundred times. Folks are sort of coming back together now. But there was a lot of time in American history when the way that you um, chose to dissent from a denomination, especially a Protestant denomination, was you just went out and started your own. Or you'd have a revival, or you know, there'd be a fight in a, big, in a church, and half the people would leave, and half the people would stay, and on you would go. Well, this congregation has had four such events in its life. And this is important to know, because it says a little bit about how we're seen by our neighbors and why sometimes there's a little bit of tension between us and the other area churches about how we're seen and how folks react to us. But I want to take us back because this this story needs a little more uh, background going on. So I want to take us back to uh, the Puritan migration of 1620 to 1640. All right, so what happened in 1620? The Pilgrims, the Mayflower, exactly. So Um, What's going on in England at this time is that there's a conflict between the Puritans and the Church of England. The Puritans get their name because they wanted to purify the Church of England. They believed that the Church of England had gone too far, that it was too Catholic. The priests had too much power. um, The Church had too much money. It held too much land. And so the Puritans were splinter groups, not all united in their faith, but mostly Calvinist in their outlook. Um, And all over England, what was happening was you had ministers who were uh, being out of favor with the Church of England or were taking their congregations in different directions. And sometimes they won that battle, but usually they lost the battle. If you were a dissenting minister in England, there was not much room for you. And things were pretty bad under King James I, but they got much worse under King Charles I. He ascends the throne in 1625, so just five years after the Mayflower has come here. So things were bad before. King Charles I ascends the throne, tries to abolish Parliament, and have the whole thing to himself. Well, the response on the Puritan side of things was to simply to flee. Some folks had gone to Holland, but more and more folks were interested in coming to the new colonies. It was clear across the Atlantic Ocean. There was next to no contact. Uh, The word on the street was that if you got there, you got to do your own thing. Nobody was going to bother you. There was plenty of space. If you didn't like somebody else, you just, you know, go off to Rhode Island and start your own religion or something like that. So what happens in 1630 is that the Winthrop fleet leaves England. 
Now, this is a big deal. This is 11 ships, and in those days, it was not easy to get a ship. You had to convince a captain and crew that uh, you had the money to put up to come over because it was a one-way trip for them. There ain't nothing going back. Remember, the colonies are so new, they're not even sending raw materials back to England. So the ship captains were very reluctant, especially to take religious groups across the ocean and then come back empty. So um, big deal to get 11 ships rounded up together, and 700 people were bound for the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Again, in those days, this is an enormous crowd. This is a large exodus, 700 people. Wikipedia says that the colonists to New England were mostly families with some education who were leading relatively prosperous lives in England. So if that's the case, you know things had to be bad, right? Because folks with education and folks with good jobs aren't going to just abandon their home. Because this was a one-way ticket. You were not coming back. You were headed to the New World. Well, the Reverends John Jones and Peter Bulkley, both of whom had fallen under the censure of the ecclesiastical hierarchy in the Church of England, were suspended from their parishes about that time, and they immigrated too to Massachusetts Bay Colony. In those days, the way that you got land in a new colony was that you sort of talked to whoever was in power and you said, hey, we're interested in some land. You got any that you'd like to give us? And usually the authorities said, you know, there's nothing but wild animals and Indians out there. You just have a nice time. (laughs) So what happened on September 2nd, 1635, is that the general court sitting in Cambridge granted to Simon Willard and Peter Bulkley and others a plantation at Musketaquid, and the documents say that it shall be six miles of land square belonging to it. So six square miles of land. When you think about it, that's a pretty big territory, right? Well, in those days, that would have been all of Concord, it would have been all of Carlisle, all of Lincoln, and maybe a little bit of some other places too. Pretty big chunk of land that Simon Willard and Peter Bulkley are granted. And then just about a year later, on July 5th, 1636, also in Cambridge, the Church of Christ in Concord was organized at Cambridge, the meeting being called by the Reverend Peter Bulkley and the Reverend John Jones. So about a year after the land is granted, the church is formed. Interestingly, I didn't know this little piece. I just always assumed it was formed here. No, it was formed in Cambridge. Um, And then they came out here uh, to establish themselves. Well, we know pretty well that history because, you know, things plugged along, and they plugged along for about 93 years. The town just kind of grew a little bit. Folks established their their farms, and their families started growing, and more and more folks came out here. Well, what was happening in those days was that this was the only church uh, for miles and miles around. So those six square miles, if you lived in those six square miles, you had to come to church here. And it was physically here. We think it sat a little bit more that direction in those days. But you came to this piece of land for church. And in case you were wondering, church was not optional. If you were living in the town of Concord, you were required, unless you were quite ill or had out of town, you were required to be in church on Sunday morning. 
Now, some folks think, oh my goodness, this is a terrible thing. Not at all. Folks look forward to Sunday. Think about it. You're running an orchard, you're running a farm, you're dealing with hogs and cattle all week, six days a week, sun up to sun down. The one day you have off is Sunday because it's the Sabbath and it's a day of rest. And so it is actually quite pleasurable to get up in the morning and get dressed and to come to church and to see your friends. And um, there was something uh, between the, there was a morning service and an afternoon service. The first service would go around three or four hours, then two or three hours in the afternoon. And there was something in the middle called nooning. Well, nooning was wonderful. It essentially was a chance to get a bite to eat, uh, to see your friends, it was kind of a relaxed time. Um, if you had traveled a long way, you would have brought food with you. If you lived close by, you might go home uh, in the middle. Well, what was happening was that it was harder and harder for the folks who were living way out in Concord to get here. It just took all day to get to church and to get home. And so in 1729, this is 93 years into the church's history, the town of Bedford petitions to have their own church. This is what the town uh, website says. Actually, nope, this is the first parish in Bedford website. It says, the town of Bedford was created in 1729 because the residents of the area found that the journey to church in Concord, or Belrica, was too long and arduous. Their petition requested permission to form their own church, including this lament. In the extreme difficult seasons of heat and cold, we were ready to say, of the Sabbath, behold, that a weariness is of it. Thus, the first parish in Bedford was established. It's too tough to get to church. And you guys, you see, you're all here this morning. I wonder where the rest of the folks are. <laughs> so Bedford breaks off, and they do that before there's really any kind of trouble here. Concord, the Concord Church is getting itself established. But then along comes Reverend Daniel Bliss. So following the ministries of the reverends Peter Bulkley, John Jones, Edward Bulkley, Joseph Estabrook, and John Whiting, Reverend Daniel Bliss was called to the congregation in 1739 during the height of the Evangelical Great Awakening Movement. Relying heavily on our wonderful history book, The Meeting House on the Green, it says, There next arose a new belief that only through travail and conversion could a person find salvation. Up to those times, it was just enough to be a signed member, to be a Calvinist, to show up on church. But the Great Awakening was about uh, conversion. Known as the Great Awakening, with its followers called the New Lights, the minister, the Reverend Daniel Bliss, was an enthusiastic proponent The New Light ministers were emotional and dramatic and delivered extemporaneous sermons describing the tortures of hell that awaited those who were not converted. So in other words, church just got a whole lot more exciting, right? The ministers weeping in the pulpit, there are people writhing in the aisles, Um, there is great emotionalism. And for the first time in this congregation's history, it had to grapple with it, it had to deal with that. Um, This is like some of our modern-day little squabbles over applause or whether you should stand up when the choir is singing a gospel song. Emotionalism has been one of the things that we have wrestled with through, uh, as a core of our identity uh, throughout our almost 400 years. As we heard in the reading, after a visit from the fiery English evangelist George Whitfield, 
in which he spoke to a crowd of thousands in an outdoor meeting here in Concord, so many of his hearers were converted that when he and Bliss returned afterwards to the minister's home, they had a congratulatory crying spell over the success of the mission. You can imagine this caused some controversy. If your minister is crying in the pulpit week after week, you know, maybe once is fine, but week after week, there's going to be some trouble. Meeting House on the Green contributor Mary Fenn continues, There were always those whose sense of proportion keeps them from adopting every new form which comes down the pike, and some viewed with skepticism the screams of ecstasy and the writhings of torture of the new lights, preferring to follow the old form of a restrained and dignified service. These folks, she said, met together in the Black Horse Tavern, which stood at that time in the V of the road in front of the present-day library, right over here. So imbued with the desire to spread the New Light's message was Daniel Bliss that he spent a great deal of his time preaching in other pulpits. So not only was the minister emotional in his own pulpit, he was spreading this around. This embarrassed his parishioners who claimed he usurped the other church's services, a charge which he denied. The worshipers in the Concord Church also disliked Bliss's sermons, which were given without notes and were not scholarly, well-thought-out discourses to which they had become accustomed. This goes on for a little while. Bliss gets more and more erratic in his preaching, both here in this pulpit and in his travels to other congregations, and folks decide that they are fed up. The first thing that happens is that there's a group of folks that decide that they're not going to come to church anymore, which of course is against the law, and you can be censured for it. You could actually be fined in those days for not attending church. Well, they start meeting over at the Black Horse Tavern, which if any of us have walked from this church to the library, know that it's not very far away, right? Well, this was also pretty scandalous because they're meeting in a tavern after all, and taverns were still a little bit suspicious in those days. But what they are starting to do is they're starting to uh, figure out a way to either make bliss be different or leave. And we know that... um, They chose, in fact, ultimately uh, to break away. So 110 years into this congregation's existence, the folks that had been meeting in the Black Horse Tavern break away and form the Lincoln Church. Now, I went to the Lincoln Church website just to see what it would say about how all of this happened. And what you'll get is a very very proper uh, sense of its formation. Let me read you what it says on the First Parish in Lincoln website. The first parish in Lincoln holds a unique and fascinating history dating back to before the Revolutionary War. In the 1730s, the rural community that is now Lincoln did not have its own church, and its townspeople were weary from traveling to church for, from traveling to churches in Concord, Lexington, and Weston. That's the Bedford excuse. So they petitioned the great court to be declared a separate township. On April 24, 1746, the second precinct of Concord was set aside, and within a a year, even before the town of Lincoln was founded, the community organized the second Church of Christ in Concord 
and built their meeting house. Fascinating what it says and what it doesn't say. There's no mention of Daniel Bliss. There's no mention of the Black Horse Tavern. They simply claim to have been too far from Concord. But surely I have to think that the emotionalism in Concord was very much a factor in the forming of the Lincoln Church. Bliss continues his antics. He goes on and on a little bit. At one point, um, folks are so fed up with him that they go to the parish council. This is the equivalent of the standing committee today. And they say, you have got to tell the minister to knock this off. This is not cool. We don't like coming to church. He's way too emotional. Um, All this stuff's happening here. We are embarrassed. So the parish council takes it up and they think about it a little while. And They talk to the minister and they talk to the concerned folks. And what they decide to do is they decide to gently censure both groups. So they say to Bliss, could you just tone it down just a little bit? Just just give us a few Sundays with a sermon you've actually written out. And you're not just standing up there saying whatever comes to mind. And to the folks who'd been avoiding church, they say, you know, we're not going to fine you, but if you come back, just come back, knock it off, put up with this guy for a while. You know, ministers come and ministers go. Um, He may not last long, put up with him for a little bit. Well, that appeases people for a little bit longer. And then, 124 years after its founding, there's another breakaway. Ironically, there's no history on the church website uh, for the church in Conquer, in Carlisle, but the town website says this. It says, first settled in 1650, Carlisle is twi- was twice a district before becoming a town. The first district was formed in 1754, entirely from the northerly part of Concord, but because the inhabitants could not agree on the location for building a meeting house for religious worship, the territory was returned to Concord in 1756. In 1758, Timothy Wilkins gave 1.5 acres of land for building such a meeting house, and which was erected in 1760 just northwest of the present religious society in the first religious society in Carlisle Center. Again, no mention of the troubles in Concord. No mention of Reverend Bliss, of the Black Horse Tavern, of what Lincoln had done. But surely the breaking away of Carlisle had something to do with the little fight that was going on in this congregation. Of course, we know that the fourth breakaway is Tricon. They broke away from us in 1829. Uh, That was 193 years into the congregation's history, but that's a story for another time. Uh, They broke away more on theological grounds, but at the base of it still was this notion that um, this congregation was prone to emotionalism, was prone to blowing in the wind where it wanted to, and was not keeping a proper uh, worship service and not keeping proper decorum. Eventually, Daniel Bliss... Uh, dies. He's minister until his death. He's buried across the street. He's at the top of the hill. You can walk up the path and say hi to him. He's, he's got one of the nicer graves up there. He and 
William Emerson. Uh, William Emerson's cenotaph is up there. William Emerson's body is actually in Rutland, Vermont, which is a whole other story about how it got there. But you can go up the hill across the street and say hello to Daniel Bliss anytime you would like. And the church went on with its subsequent ministers. What this story tells me, the story of the Black Horse Tavern, the story of Daniel Bliss and his emotionalism in the pulpit, is that First Parish in Concord has long represented a liberalizing establishment. So it's been doing two things at once. Um, It's definitely an established congregation, but it keeps liberalizing. It keeps uh, trying on new things. And let me just kind of give you my rundown as I see it. There are probably little bits that could be added to this. I would say that there has always been a tension between our institutionalists and those who wanted us as a congregation to go faster, uh, both theologically and socially. And the way I see it, I see that the Puritans were breaking away from the Church of England, and that's how the church was founded, as a Calvinist church. The New Lights then break away from the Puritans. This emotionalism, this great awakening affects the congregation. Next, the Unitarians start breaking away from those New Lights. In fact, Ezra Ripley, who's the longest-serving minister of this congregation at 63 years, he's sort of the last of the, the, the New Lights and the first of the Transcendentalists because his ministry is so long. He spans that generational shift from uh, New Light Puritanism to uh, what became known as Calvinism. In the middle of that, you've got the Unitarian controversy, you've got Tricon breaking away, and you've got the congregation for the first time in its history, while still Christian, uh, claiming a Unitarian theological uh, perspective. That's, of course, the church that the uh, Transcendentalists would have known. That's the church that uh, Emerson accuses of being corpse cold or an ice house. So the Transcendentalists break away from the Unitarians, and then the Humanists break away from the Transcendentalists. The Humanists just take us one step further and say, what's all this talk about God anyway? And then in more recent years, uh, certainly at the end of the 20th century and into the 21st century, I see a sort of rational theism breaking away from the humanism, which tended to dominate uh, Unitarian churches in the 20th century. And I assure you, we are not done with all of this breaking away yet. Something new and different will come along. Something that our kids and grandkids will be the ones who carry it forward. Something will happen to keep this going. So the question is, what do we do in our day, both to preserve First Parish in Concord and to keep it from getting stuck? Because as I look at the ministries here, they are largely about men, and we can add Jenny Rankin into there as one of the women and some other women on that backboard. It's about keeping this place a congregation that is an institution, that is a force in town, that is a place for people to gather. And yet it comes uh, under scrutiny over and over and over again by people who want it to move faster, move farther, do something different, give up its old ways. So this is, this is the conundrum that we are in as a congregation. The other question that this little story begs is, what do we do when a minister preaches 
something we don't like. What do we do when a minister preaches something that we don't like? It's going to happen. I'm probably going to do it. Liz Weber is joining us September 1st. She's probably going to do it. What happens? What is the relationship, in other words, between minister and congregation? Um, What freedom am I allowed as your called senior minister? What freedom do you all have as a congregation? Both to hear things that are fitting with your belief system and also to be pushed, to be pushed in one way or another to have your horizons expanded. There's no question in my mind that First Parish and Concord will continue, and I also know that none of us will be able to predict what it will be like in the future. I hope you're keeping your ears open. Unitarian Universalism is going through um, huge seismic shifts at the moment. Um, We are very close to Boston, and the UUA is having seismic shifts. General Assembly this past year uh, gave us a bit of a taste of what's to come. It will not be easy to ride through these. There will be folks who leave us. There will be folks who find us because we're doing something exciting and new. But keep your ears open because not only is this congregation constantly under pressure to be both relevant and to be an institution that holds history, holds tradition, holds this piece of ground in Concord. Um, Our denomination is being asked to do the same thing. The struggles will be around white supremacy. They'll be around race. They'll be around uh, whether we talk too much about politics, whether we have come to put social justice at the center of who we are and how that works out. This is a conversation. I'll be involved in it. You'll be involved in it and this congregation will be involved in it. If I ever start weeping in the pulpit, (laughs) if any of you ever decide you're going to come out in the aisle and roll around and kick and holler, maybe even if I just get an amen occasionally, or a hallelujah, or a preach it, or a you go, We can thank one of our former ministers, Daniel Bliss. Oh, what an interesting can of worms you opened. So be it. Amen.